0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this platform on the Film Pioneers, where we'll be discussing some of the historical and film background to the play Travelling Light by Nicholas Wright. So the background is partly the early film industry, partly uh, the role of Eastern European immigrants uh, to America, in the 1880s and 90s particularly, uh, partly uh, the the role of uh, Jewish film people in New York and Hollywood, Uh, early film in Eastern Europe and those sorts of things and um, to help with this I have with me the person to talk about this Joel Findler who was the very first film critic on Time Out uh, who's written several (laughs) books on Hollywood including the best-informed book in my opinion on Hollywood it's called The Hollywood Story on movie stills on Eric von Stroheim and he's currently researching and writing a large book on Jews in the film business so he knows a great deal about this subject. The play takes place around about 1900, the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Was this a particularly significant time for emigration from Eastern Europe? Well, it's in an unnamed Eastern European country, probably Poland, Ukraine, part of Poland. Uh, But was it a particularly significant time around about 1900, do you think?
1: Uh, Oh, yes, and and certainly there's a combination of of, uh, uh, special interests around this period because it's uh, not mentioned in the play, but they're all speaking What's called Yiddish, which is a very uh, the Jewish language of the what's called the Pale of Settlement, which is this large area of Eastern Europe, which overlaps Poland, a bit of Hungary, uh, Ukraine, uh, a bit of Russia, and in fact uh, by this period, Yiddish had kind of emerged from the background. It's it's a language which started thousands of years before, and It it is very much a part of what's called the shtetl, which is this little kind of hamlet, these little towns where many of the Jewish population lived, uh, particularly, of course, the characters in this play. And what happened about the mid-19th century is all of a sudden a number of very interesting writers who had previously been writing, say, in Russian or in Hebrew, which is the more the religious language of the Jews, started to write in Yiddish. And so what emerged was a whole kind of Yiddish culture, which was then carried by the immigrants to the United States. So you not only had two million immigrants, Jewish immigrants, but you had two million Yiddish speakers suddenly living in New York. So uh, what's really interesting is, of course, one of the, the best known of the writers, is mainly Shalom <coughs> sorry, <laughs> Sholom Aleichem, who, of course, you might recognize as the name of the writer whose stories were adapted in Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. And he was the special writer about the shtetl. He brought to life uh, the kind of shtetl uh, stories a kind of milieu which came to life in his stories. So what you have is a combination of a cultural development. At the same time, you have a big movement of people. You have the beginnings of the cinema and also the beginnings of Yiddish theater, uh, all of which kind of interact in various kinds of ways.
0: I should say that the play is in English. (laughs) Uh, They're um, uh, they're pretending to be, as it were, uh, from a Yiddish-speaking community. But when, okay, the big waves of immigration, as you describe, in the 1880s and 90s, sort of predating cinema, they arrive in New York. What attracted so many people from that generation to the movie business?
1: Uh, Well, they discovered it, in a sense. I mean, what's uh, kind of interesting is that the famous immigrants, the men who headed the Hollywood studios, like Louis B. Mayer and like Adolf Zukor, actually arrived as young men. And because they were kind of at a pre-cinema period, they had all kinds of odd jobs, different jobs, often as businessmen. First of all, and in the
0: rag trade, because a lot of them, I think, sure, that's right. furriers, jewelers, glove salesmen. They, it was initially in the Lower East Side, wasn't it, in in the fashion businesses before they got into. That's film. right. I mean, yeah.
1: again, an interesting point is you probably know, of course, Anthony Sher is the uh, lead actor in the play. He's the most spontaneous, interesting kind of character in the group, and in a way, what he expresses, though he's speaking in English is a bit of the kind of excitement, the kind of spontaneity uh, of, of the Yiddish language, which is a, a very rich uh, type of language, which uh, really had been considered uh, as, as something which, which couldn't be adapted into literature, and yet yet it's, it's something which, if, for example, you read in the, the program booklet the description of the shtetl by Eva Hoffman one thing which unfortunately she leaves out in discussing the whole life of the shtetl and how the, the Jews who would live together and communicate in all kinds of different ways really had this language, this marvelous spontaneous language which would travel all around these different countries. So it also meant, of course, that, that once the theater troupe started, they could travel from one town to another, from Riga to Odessa to Lvov, and would be understood by Jewish people all around. Yeah.
0: You mentioned the stories of Eliakim, and actually the, uh, the character played by Anthony Sher, Jacob, uh, is rather like Tevye, the, the dairyman, you know, the character who was played by Zero Mostel on the stage of Fiddler on the Roof, and then by Topol, and also in the film of Fiddler on the Roof. It's a tiny whiff of that, I think, in his character, don't you? The storyteller, very sort of flamboyant, external, and in a way, the heart of the community.
1: Yes. Well, of course, the, the filmmaker, the director in the play is actually named Motel Mendel. Yeah. And in fact, Motel and Mendel happen to be two of Shalom Aleichem's favorite characters. So obviously, the playwright has has read the Aleichem and, and the, found this source for yeah. his yeah. character names. Yeah.
0: And. Um, Okay, so th- th- this generation arrives in New York and very often everyone emphasises Hollywood all the time with the movie industry, but New York is at this stage of the game the heart of the movie, the capital of the movie industry. doesn't it? Hollywood scarcely exists. So they arrive, but most of them gravitate towards exhibition and distribution rather than production and direction and so on. Can you tell us a bit about that, John?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, most of the well-known producers, Hollywood producers, really started producing films relatively late. And thinking about it, I mean, I, I suddenly realized that at the very beginnings of the cinema, we're talking about the real pioneers back around 1897, 1898, 1900, around the period when the play is taking place, there's one Jewish pioneer who's sort of forgotten, and... uh, Sigmund Lubin. That's right, now, if if you look at most reference books, he'll be referred to as German, and uh, in fact, it's not absolutely certain where he was born, probably somewhere in Germany, but his original name was Lubitschinski, and again, there too, you probably won't find that in most reference books, and it turns out that he's not really completely German, and that his parents, are Polish, they come from Eastern Europe, they settled in Germany, and he's slightly exception in that he's a well-educated man. So most of the moguls, what's interesting about them is that they were very uneducated and tough businessmen and people who fought their way up, but he was a, a practicing oculist, and he was a specialist on lenses and providing eyeglasses for people, and then he was, Uh, interested in photography and moved over to the cinema. And he is about the one figure in the whole history of the cinema which kind of matches the character you see in the play in that he started out, he actually settled in Philadelphia. In fact, you can see his company is, it's as clear as a bell. They have a little Liberty Bell symbol which is a Philadelphia symbol, the, the Bell of Liberty. So
0: what sort of period are we talking about for his work?
1: 1897, right. he's a real, right. genuine and pioneer. And he
0: produces, he directs, does That's he act right. he acts as well? He what? acts a bit, yeah. yes. Whereas the others are and in He makes, he makes his films,
1: good. in other words, if you know uh, the story of some of the early pioneers, like the Lumiere's, mm. who are mentioned again in the program, mm. that they started out making films with their family, filming their friends, their daughters, mm. sons, and such, and the very same way, Lubin in Philadelphia made his first films. He developed his own kind of camera. Mm. He was a really interesting figure. And part of the story, of course, is that he wasn't known to be Jewish. <laughs> his name was Lubin, he had changed it to Lubin. Mm. He was known, in fact, there's a slight parallel with people like the Cordas. You probably know Alexander Cordas, probably the most famous mm. Jewish producer in this country. He wasn't really known as Jewish in the 30s, he was known as, as uh, kind of eccentric, uh, as exotic, European, Hungarian. Mm. Similarly, Lubin, he was even known familiarly as Pop Lubin and as being German mm. and, and uh, rather than Jewish. Now there was, of course, still a lot of anti-Semitism at this time, so it, for him it was good to, he didn't look especially mm. Jewish. But was, do, do
0: you think, because it was a fledgling business and they were there right at the beginning, that traditions of anti-Semitism in more established industries, that one of the reasons they gravitated towards this business was it didn't have a tradition of anti-Semitism. They were making it up as they went along. Do you think there's something in that?
1: Well, what certainly was the case that there wasn't really an industry. In other words, so you would just start at the bottom. You would, I mean, really at the bottom. In other words, you just walk on the street and you see a shop and you say, oh, look, that shop, we could actually convert that shop and you start showing a few movies, put a few chairs in. Yeah. So the expense was, was absolutely minimal. Mm. And it was free enterprise. It was, you just you went in and, yeah. and uh, uh, just one day you happened to pass along a street and, and see people queuing up for something or other. And you mm. thought, oh, well, this might be something. Yeah. And when they start making
0: too. films, the, the, the early locations are sort of rooftops in New York. And then, and then you get Fort Lee, which is a sort of studio mm. Uh, complex, the other side of the river. This is long before Hollywood, isn't it? I mean, this is right throughout the sort of 1900 to 1910, 12 era, and I mean, remind me, you know all this, Joel, but (laughs) the first people to work, I mean, there's one or two people who go to Hollywood, 1907, 1908, 1909, to make individual movies or set up small companies, but the official starting date for like Hollywood as a movie center is the end of 1914 or 1913, sorry, 1913, the centenary is just about to come up when they made The Squaw Man. Before that, it's little bits, isn't it? And it's all New York.
1: Yes, well, of course, there's a famous book uh, uh, called An Empire of Their Own Mm. by Neil Gabler, where he talks, and and most of the writing about the Jewish producers and the companies center very much on Hollywood, and they don't go back uh, quite far enough in terms of really understanding what happened with the Jewish producers The really interesting story is from about 1910 to about 1921, you have New York filmmaking and Hollywood filmmaking existing side by side. It isn't as if Hollywood suddenly becomes the big center of filmmaking. So what it means is that lots of the leading stars, directors are actually bouncing back and forth between the East Coast Mm. and the West Coast and As far as the Jewish producers are concerned, virtually every single one of them starts off making their films in New York. Certainly, in many cases, they go to Hollywood fairly quickly, Mm. but New York is where they start. And even in the case of of Cecil B. DeMille and Lasky, who go out to make The Squaw Man, late 1913, Mm. and this is considered the beginning of of real Hollywood. Mm. Well, in fact, the company was formed in New York. That's where they, they all met. There was, uh, of course, a lot of this was connected to the New York theater. Many of the early film actors were from the theater, the directors as well. And the financial centers. The real power of the companies always resided in New York. So, I mean, a, an obvious example is uh, a company like MGM, the very famous studio run by Louis B. Mayer. Well, Louis B. Mayer, was, was actually uh, second under Nick Skank. Nick Skank was the president of the company, and he's the one who actually fired Mayer in 1951. And he's That's where the York? power was. That's right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Meanwhile in Eastern Europe, um, when were the earliest films that we know about that were actually generated in Eastern Europe rather than in New York? I mean, I know there's, there's quite a lot of shorts from about 1910, 1911 from Russia and Poland and Hungary, now lost, but they're referred to in the reference books. But is there anything earlier?
1: No, 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 that's really... It's usually... Period. Period. In fact, in terms of the the whole history of the cinema, uh, the period from about 1910, 1911 is when the cinema starts to spread all over the world. Yeah. So f- from that point on, the cameras are available and it's more easy to get the film stock and, and to... Uh, put together short films, or longer films. I mean, the, the real tragedy, of course, is that uh, you're probably not aware of the fact of how much of the cinema is totally lost, and especially uh, minority type films. Mm. There were many, many films made during the period from about 1912 to about 1920. And hardly a single one of them survives, yeah. uh, just because again, what tends to survive is is a commercial film, say from a bigger studio, where there'll be lots of prints. So they'll you know have a big star. They'll send a print to, to London, to New York, to travel around. But if it's a little film, there may only be one print, maybe one or two prints, yeah. ever, mm-hmm. and these easily get lost, mm-hmm. destroyed.
0: The 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 plot of um, Traveling Light, without giving it away, but. One of the givens is that one of the Lumiere cinematograph machines, which is this very early machine, which is both a projector and a camera in one, finds its way to the Shtetl in Eastern Europe in 1900. Is that possible?
1: No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's, a, it's a metaphor.
0: So, so we want to introduce you to some of the moguls who made the journey in the 1880s and 90s. So we've and already ended up discussed running. Lubin, yeah, right? Yeah.
1: So now here's Adolf Zukor. He comes from Hungary. In fact, as I say, virtually all of them come from Eastern Europe. He came from Hungary quite early. He was about 19, uh, sorry, 18, 18, 18. that's right. Yeah. And uh, so he as a young man, he was only a teenager. So obviously, by the time he started to become involved in films, uh, about 1902, 1903, he was already in his 30s. He was a, quite an experienced, furrier businessman.
0: Yeah, and what was his company?
1: Well, he was one of the founders of, of Paramount. Yeah, yeah. Originally, it was called Famous Players. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, another shot of Sam Goldwyn, mm. who was an immigrant from Poland, came over, I think, about 1880, mm. and uh, was a glover. And was, he was the business partnership of Lasky and DeMille.
0: And he got involved in the film business quite late, actually, by their standards. Wasn't it about 1913, before he actually got involved?
1: Oh, yeah, oh, well, all yeah. of them, yeah. the, 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 the Lasky group. Yeah. Well, the end of 1913, they right. formed this company. Right. and That's I'll William.
0: Oh, sorry, on you go, William Fox. Yeah. William Fox, yeah.
1: uh, another immigrant. Uh, he came from, over as a baby. From Hungary. That's right, he was an immigrant, nine months old, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. his family, with his parents, and uh, settled in New York, and uh, was uh, quite a powerful character. And of course, you, you still know his name carries on as 20th Century Fox. Mm.
0: Yeah. Carl Lemley?
1: Now, Lemley is the, one of the exceptions. He, he's the one that came from Germany rather than from Eastern Europe, mm. from a, a, a Jewish family mm. in, in Eastern Germany. And he's famous, so he when he saying, founded Universal
0: he Studios, he's famous for his relatives, looking after his relatives, and his sort of extended family, wasn't it, within the studio, a lot of people came over uh, in subsequent waves, and were employed by the studio. he became Uncle Carl, who looked after them all. I think it was yes. very like the theme. yeah of well the, they, of they the joke play.
1: that Lemley has a big family
0: yeah, yeah, the son in law also rises anyway that 's the sorry yeah
1: okay, this is the first of the the three important Warner brothers. yeah, uh, this is Sam Warner, who is probably best remembered as the man who put together the jazz singer. Unfortunately, he is also the story as he died the night before the premiere of The oh, Jazz yeah. Singer.
0: Because there was Sam, Harry, and Jack, the Warner Brothers. Uh, well, there was
1: the fourth one as, yeah. as well. All from Poland.
0: Um, what, but we don't know their real name.
1: That's right. I mean, this is the holy grail of of, uh, <laughs> of, of kind of researching the beginnings of the cinema. Because we know, like, for example, Sam Goldwyn, was originally called Schmiel Goldfish. And uh, well, Zukor, obviously, he, he didn't actually change his name. But the Warners, nobody ever knows what. Obviously, Warner is not a Polish name, so... so uh, yeah, well, no, it'll yeah. turn up
0: one day, I expect. Oh,
1: I and mean, that's Harry. Yeah. Now, Harry was the big boss, in a sense. He's the one that stayed in New York. He was the president of the company for many years, and he used to fight quite a lot with his younger brother, who comes up, who's Jack. Jack is the best-known one who ran the Warner Brothers studio in Hollywood, yeah. whereas Harry was, was in New York. So you have a similar example with MGM, say, where, where uh, Nick Skank was the president with the power in New York, and Louis B. Mayer, who's the famous one, but who really was under the thumb of yeah. Nick Skank. Yeah. So that's uh, Jack there. Yeah,
0: Jack, the Warner Brothers. See, it's extraordinary. As we go through these, all the majors, all the major studios really have this provenance of these generations from either Eastern Europe, or in one case, Germany, arriving in New York and then splitting financial center in New York, a production center in Hollywood, And they become Hollywood. It's extraordinary, isn't it? As a a diaspora. That's right. Yeah.
1: Okay, now this is around the time of the formation of MGM in 1924. Marcus Lowe, he was the real power behind the formation of MGM. To this day, the main company is called Lowe's Incorporated, and the studio, headed by Louis B. Mayer, is called MGM, and that's just the film studio. Marcus Lowe, unfortunately, died not too long after the foundation of MGM, so his assistant, Nick Skank, then became the president who is the figure you know best over the period from the 20s right up to the 1950s. You have Nick Skank's brother, who was, uh, I should mention Nick Skank and Joseph Skank, both from Russia, Mm -hmm. both immigrants around 1880. His brother was a much nicer kind of character. He started off, he was married to the actress Norma Talmadge, who's a half-Jewish actress, and he produced the first films of of Buster Keaton, for example. Which were
0: in New York. The early Buster Keaton films That's right, the very first.
1: He had what was called the Norma Talmadge studio in New York. He went out to Hollywood. He actually, for a, a period of time, was the head of United Artists, and then he moved on to a company called 20th Century with Daryl Zanuck, which then became 20th Century Fox, uh, merger in 1935, and Joe Skank then became president of 20th Century Fox.
0: And of course, Griffith is one of the people who went over to Hollywood early on with uh, the Biograph Company before it became Hollywood proper. Oh, that's right. uh,
1: In terms of the the history of, of Yiddish cinema, of course, it wasn't really ready to take off during the silent period because it's such a rich language. What do you make of a a silent film that's in Yiddish? I mean, it it was only when the sound came along that the Yiddish cinema really started to blossom. Mm.
0: But there's a very interesting moment in the play where Anthony Schur talks about how he's not very good at languages and he's not very good at using language. And isn't it great, rather to the contrary, isn't it great to have movies that are silent that are understandable in outside the Yiddish community, in any community in the world. And it reminded me of, there's a famous thing written by, of all people, Lenin, where he describes all the languages of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, Ukraine, Georgian, Russian, all these languages, and isn't silent movie great because you don't have to version them, you can just send them around and everyone can immediately understand them. All you have to do is alter the language of the intertitles. And I thought that was a very interesting point to make. And certainly that was, yes. that was through getting outside the Yiddish community. That was, a very, that was very much part of this, I think.
1: And by 1939, of course, this is reaching the end of the great era of J- Yiddish cinema, obviously with the war breaking out. Mm. There's nothing could be done in Poland anymore. And, uh, and part of the sad story... Well, again, what's really kind of fascinating, if you look at the whole history of, of Yiddish culture, you have Yiddish as it's just spoken language up to, say, mid-19th century. Then, toward the end of the 19th century, you have these marvelous stories and novels and plays emerging, and then, in a way, the cinema is a kind of culmination Mm. of their adapting some of the stories, they're adapting the plays, and And then, of course, especially the late 30s, you have these films made in Poland, in the United States, and in Poland, of course, the tragedy is you're seeing films made with actors who were, a few years later, were killed in concentration camps, which were wiped out, and the whole Yiddish cinema was was destroyed. So the films today are a remarkable kind of record of a period of the the shtetls themselves, of the actors, of the language. And the Yiddish theater tradition. That's right.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much for coming this evening. Thank you, Joel, for uh, all your information, and I hope you. you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much.